Chapter 9 of The Star Chamber, an historical romance, volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, volume 2, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 9, Prince Charles. There is now great stir within the palace, and its principal court is full of horsemen, some of them apparelled in steel and with their steeds covered with rich trappings, and all attended by pages and yeomen in resplendent liveries. Besides these, there are trumpeters in crimson cassocks, mounted on goodly horses, and having their clarions adorned with silken pennons, on which the royal arms are broidered. Then there are kettle-drummers and other musicians, likewise richly arrayed and well-mounted, and the various pages, grooms, and officers belonging to the Prince of Wales, standing around his charger, which is caparisoned with white and gold. Distinguishable even amidst this brilliant and knightly throng is Sir Jocelyn Monchensey, Mounted upon a fiery Spanish barb, presented to him by the Conde de Gondomar, he is fully equipped for the jousts. The trappings of his steed are black and white velvet, edged with silver, and the plumes upon his helmet are of the same colors, mingled. He is conversing with the Spanish ambassador, who, like all the rest, is superbly attired, though not in armor, and is followed by a crowd of lackeys and jerkins and hose of black satin, guarded with silver. An unusual degree of bustle proclaims the approach of some personage of extraordinary importance. This is soon made known to be the Marquis of Buckingham. His arrival is announced by loud flourishes from the six mounted trumpeters by whom he is preceded. Their horses are caparisoned with orange-colored taffeta, while they themselves are habited in gabardines of the same stuff. After the trumpeters come four gentlemen ushers and four pages, mounted on his spare horses, and habited in orange-colored doublets and hose, with yellow plumes in their caps. To them succeed the grooms in mandillions, or loose sleeveless jackets, leading the Marquis's charger, which is to run in the lists, a beautiful dark bay jennet, trapped with green velvet, sewn with pearls, and pounced with gold. Next comes Buckingham himself, in a magnificent suit of armor, engraved and damaskined with gold, with an aigret of orange feathers nodding on his cask. Thus apparelled, it is impossible to imagine a nobler or more chivalrous figure than he presents. Though completely cased in steel, his magnificent person seems to have lost none of its freedom of movement, and he bears himself with as much grace and ease as if clad in his customary habiliments of silk and velvet. For the moment he rides a sorrel horse, whose spirit is too great to allow him to be safely depended upon in the lists, but who now serves by his fire and impetuosity to display to advantage his rider's perfect management. Buckingham is followed by thirty yeomen, apparelled like the pages, and twenty gentlemen in short cloaks and Venetian hose. He acknowledges the presence of his antagonist and the Spanish ambassador with a courteous salutation addressed to each, and then riding forward, takes up a position beside the Duke of Lennox, who, mounted and fully equipped, and having his five companions-at-arms with him, is awaiting the coming forth of Prince Charles. The Duke of Lennox is very sumptuously arrayed in armor, partly blue and partly gilt and graven, and his charger is caparisoned with cloth of gold, embroidered with pearls. Besides this he has four spare horses, led by his pages, in housings equally gorgeous and costly. These pages have cassock coats, and Venetian hose of cloth of silver laid with gold lace, and caps with gold bands and white feathers, and white buskins. His retinue consists of forty gentlemen and yeomen, and four trumpeters. 
His companions at arms are all splendidly accoutred and mounted on richly caparisoned chargers. The most noticeable figure among them, however, is that of Sir Giles Mompasson, and he attracts attention from the circumstance of his armor being entirely sable, his steed jet black, and his housings, plumes, and all his equipments of the same somber hue. At this juncture, a page, in the prince's livery of white and gold, approaches Sir Jocelyn and informs him that his highness desires to speak with him before they proceed to the tilt-yard. On receiving the summons, the young knight immediately quits de Gondomar, and, following the page to the doorway leading to the state apartments, dismounts at the steps, leaving his steed in charge of his youthful companion. On entering the vestibule, he finds a large party assembled, comprising some of the fairest dames of court, and several noble gallants, who intend taking no other part than that of spectators in the approaching tilting match. Most of them are known to Sir Jocelyn, and they eagerly crowd round him, fearing something may have occurred to interfere with the proceedings of the day. The young knight allays their apprehensions, and after experiencing the kindling influence always produced by the smiles of the fair, begins to ascend the great staircase, and has nearly reached the door at its head, communicating with the stone gallery, when it is thrown open by an usher, and Prince Charles comes forth. The noble countenance of Prince Charles is stamped with the same gravity, and slightly touched with the same melancholy, which distinguished his features through life, but which naturally deepened as misfortune fell upon him. But as those dark days cannot now be discerned, and as all seems brilliant around him, and full of brightest promise, this prophetic melancholy is thought to lend interest to his handsome features. He is attired in a suit of black armor of exquisite workmanship, lacking only the helmet, which is carried by a page, as are the volante pies, the mentonier, and the grand guard, intended to be worn in the field. On seeing Sir Jocelyn, he pauses and signs to his attendants to stand back. "'I have sent for you, Sir Jocelyn,' he said, "'to ascertain whether it is true that Sir Giles Mompasson is amongst the Duke of Lennox's party.' "'It is perfectly true, Your Highness,' replied Sir Jocelyn. "'He is now in the courtyard.' A shade of displeasure crossed the prince's noble countenance, and his brow darkened. "'I am sorry to hear it, and but that I should grievously offend the king, my father, I would forbid him to take part in the jousts,' he cried. "'Sir Giles deserves to be degraded from knighthood rather than enjoy any of its honorable privileges.' "'Entertaining these sentiments, if Your Highness will make them known to the king,' He will doubtless order Sir Giles's immediate withdrawal from the lists, said Sir Jocelyn. Most assuredly, he is unworthy to enter them. Not so, rejoined the prince. I have already represented the matter to his majesty, and trusted my remonstrances would be attended to. But I find they have proved ineffectual. Buckingham, it appears, has more weight than I have. Yet this notorious extortioner's insolence and presumption ought not to pass unpunished. They shall not, your highness, replied Sir Jocelyn. I will so deal with him that I will warrant he will never dare show himself within the precincts of the palace again. Do nothing rashly, said the prince. You must not disguise from yourself that you may displease the king and provoke Buckingham's animosity. I cannot help it, returned Sir Jocelyn. I will insult him if he crosses my path. I cannot blame you, said the prince. In your position I should do the same, and I am only restrained by the injunctions laid upon me by the king from commanding his instant departure but I must proceed towards the tilt-yard. We shall meet again anon. With this he descended the staircase, and as soon as his train of gentlemen ushers and pages had passed on, Sir Jocelyn followed, 
and making his way through the still-crowded vestibule, gained the door and vaulted on the back of his steed. End of chapter 9